Welcome to Harvest Mission Community Church. You are listening to one of our sermons. And so this whole section, the first three chapters, is really about the scandalous gospel. Why is it so scandalous? Because it just goes against what we're expecting to the point where it actually draws attention, not to ourselves per se, but also most of all, to Jesus Christ and what he has done for us to usher in the kingdom of God. And so I want to talk about the unrighteous being made righteous. And what does that mean? Uh, and we have to first understand what it means and believe in our hearts that we are unrighteous apart from Christ. And so I pray that this morning it will encourage you. Uh, I'm just going to be upfront. It's not going to be in a very encouraging message where you feel all these butterflies because this is reality. This is when we get to the big stuff, chapter 3. And it's just going to tell you how much we suck. And uh, even when I was preparing, I'm like, oh, man, this is, yeah, oh, oh, no. But that's why it's the good news, because you don't have the good news unless you have what? The bad news. So we're going to talk about it. But my hope and prayer is that when we walk out of this place, we'll be a little bit more excited about the gospel and it will internalize in our hearts. And as you can, some of you can tell, we're going to take communion today. So it's a great opportunity to rededicate our lives to Christ and what he has done for us as he ushered in the kingdom of God. So Romans chapter 3, we're going to look at the first 20 verses. But as a way of review, and I'm going to try to do this as often as possible so we won't forget. We're talking about the simple gospel story. And so we want to summarize it, and we talked about how there are four pillars. And I want you to say this with me. The first part is what? The creation. Okay, you weren't ready for that. So once again, I'm going to ask you a question. So turn to somebody and say, are you ready? All right. The first part is what? Creation. That's part of the gospel story. Because what has happened is we truncated the gospel, and we made it into, you're a sinner, Jesus loves you, he came down on the cross, he, di- uh, he died, he rose again from the dead. Now you ask him into your quote-unquote heart, and then you will be saved. And that's how many of you understand the gospel. This is the reason why we have so many people in the church who are not living purposefully, who are not living missionally, who are not living passionately. And oftentimes what happens is that we have just made Sunday the church thing, and the rest of the days of the week, We are the kings. We are the masters of our own life. And we want to do what we want to do. And that is not the life that Jesus Christ called us to as he opened up the way for us to be a part of the kingdom of God. So God created all things. And he created them to be what? Good. And as he created all things that were good, it was because to be in that relationship with us. But as you know, sin entered in. And because of sin... We noticed that we were banished away, and that's why we have broken the fellowship and the relationship with God. And ever since then, we've been hiding. Ever since then, we've been doing our own thing. But God is a missionary God who is pursuing after us. And as he is pursuing after, he's sending people, circumstances, different things, so that you will be able to give your allegiance to him and to nothing else. And that's why all throughout you will see that creation... It's something that God intended for good, but now everything here on this earth, we realize that even though they are still good, there is sin that has affected it and damaged it. And this is the reason why there's a calling upon our lives. So there's creation, and then there's the fall, and the third part is what? Redemption. 
that Jesus is redeeming all things. That word is a very powerful word. It comes from the marketplace. It comes from the business world where you buy back something that's already yours. And that's what happened, that we were lost. We were, God possessed us, but then we were lost due to our sin. So now God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross so that what? So he could purchase us back into that relationship. And then the last part is what? The last R is restore or restoration, that God is restoring all things. And I said to help us to really understand this, not only remembering the creation, fall, redemption, and restoration as pieces of cloth into this story, I gave you an acronym that will help you to understand what are the key things that are interwoven into these cloth. And we use the acronym, what? GIFT. The first part is God. God is in the center of the story. He is writing the story. It's not about us. It's about God. And so, as I shared earlier, what God created all things, and he's pursuing after us. You ha we have to have the main character in this story, and it's God. The I is who? The Israelites. That God decided to choose the Israelites. We don't know why, but it was just his prerogative. He chose the Israelite people so that through them, not that they would just enjoy the blessings of God and that's it, but through them all nations will be blessed. And we know what God was talking about only after the fact because it was through the Israelite uh, people that the Messiah was going to come, Jesus Christ. And this is the reason why the Israelites had a very important part. But what happened to them? They continued to worship and have idols in their lives. This is the reason why they have failed in their mission. The very thing that God has given to them, they live for themselves. And so that's why God now said, I'm going to send my son, Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ came, what happened was the F is what? The fulfillment. All the prophecies of old, talking about Jesus. Now he is the Messiah. That Jesus is now taking the center stage. As he inaugurates the kingdom of God. It's here, but not yet. He officially announced it as he opened up the scroll of Isaiah 61. And he began to say that I will set prisoners free. Open up blind eyes. And as he declared liberty to all those who are in bondage. He's saying that in this hearing, it has been fulfilled. And that's why now, as believers in Christ, we have this wonderful opportunity and privilege to be a part of the work of transformation, which is the T. That now everything we do, our work, school, our relationships, everything in this world, now we're going to do it differently because why? Christ has transformed us, and now we are trying to transform the world. This is the gospel story. Please, don't misunderstand me. We should always share about Jesus Christ coming to this earth and dying on the cross and re resurrecting from the dead. That's part of it. But we need to be able to give the fuller picture and the story about what God was doing through Jesus Christ. So now, with all that in mind, I want to start off and ask you a question. And uh, I'm going to ask you to go ahead and lift your hand if you uh, feel comfortable enough. But I'm wondering, how many of you, this is just you as you think about yourself, how many of you really believe that people generally are just good people? Can you raise your hand? Okay. All right. Okay, so the rest of you think everyone's evil and out to get you, right? All right. Okay, now I see how it is. No wonder you guys look so suspicious. Always looking behind your back, you know, what's going on? Always like, what is your motive and all these things. But 
one of the thoughts that I had was this. I think we live in a culture where we do want to see the best in people. But the problem is, as you know, just from social media, the news, and everything that's happening around the world, tensions amongst nations, right now I would say we are not looking at people's best interests. In fact, what's happening right now is a revelation of the wickedness of the human heart. And a lot of the things that we're seeing right now that's happening around the world, it is something that I believe it is natural to who we are as humans. It's almost as if you get angry, which is a natural reaction. And through that anger, sometimes you then do things to either get revenge or to hurt that other person. Sometimes you will say things or spread rumors or whatever it may be. And so I think in our nature, you'll realize that we're not as good as we would like to believe or present ourselves. But I will say this, those of you who think that most people are generally good, just talk to parents with little toddlers. They will tell you they're like little devils running around and they drive them crazy. And it's interesting because whenever you see these little children, uh, toddlers or just young children, like no one teaches them to fight. No one teaches them to be selfish. No one teaches them to smack somebody when someone takes their toy. No one teaches them that. I don't know. Who knows? Maybe Pastor Bo and Erica are like, okay, no one, anyone steals your toy, smack them. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> of course not. These are things that are what? Within our nature. And so in many ways, we have to understand that in our sinful nature, there are a lot of things that we do that we don't want to do. And a lot of things we should do, we do not do. And so what I wanted to do is, I don't, I don't know if you've seen this on social media, but this person posted this on Facebook. And literally within two to three weeks, it had over 21 million views and close to 300,000 shares. They shared it with other people. That's how it went viral. Let me give you a little background of this video. And some of you who have seen it, once you see it, you'll know it. Pretty much it's a father who's in, in, in some sense giving parental advice as he was at Walmart, which is kind of like a big giant store. And as they were at the store, the young one, the daughter, she started acting up. And once again, as I mentioned before, when you have parents who have little kids, they'll tell you they're the most evil people in the whole wide world, right? Little demons running around. Crying like a storm because she's not able to get what she wants. The father would have nothing to do with this. And you'll hear it, but he grew up in the hood. You know what I'm saying? He grew up in the hood. So this is where in the hood, there's a lot of stuff that goes on. And so pretty much he's explaining what's happening. And then he's actually giving parental advice. And as I watched this, I, I said, phenomenal, incredible. Because what he did was something that I think many of us did not experience. That's a dramatic pause, but just so, let me catch my thought here. I would say for many of you, every time you screwed up or you messed up or you did things that you should not have done, you were either yelled at or you might have been physically abused. 
And so I want you to understand that you are sitting right now where you are and also sitting next to somebody or in front of you or behind you. And all these experiences in your life has created who you are today. For, for better or for worse. As you're sitting in that chair, you are who you are today because of all the experiences that you've gone through. And especially majority of the time is with your family. And the sad part is that some of you were not parented well. I'm not trying to offend you, but I'm just saying, because your parents weren't parented well either. So a lot of times, generational sins continue to go on one generation after another generation. I've been doing ministry long enough that as soon as I meet some people, I know when they have issues, especially when it's tied in with family. Because you know when someone grew up in a very secure, loving family. It's just different. Compared to somebody who grew up maybe in a, a broken home, a violent home, abusive home, you can just totally tell in terms of their identity, in terms of their security, in terms of the way they look at things, the way they view themselves, the way they view the world. You can just tell. And that's why I want to show you this because what I'm trying to point out is unless these things are shaped in your life, you're not going to fully understand the gospel. Until somebody who loves you enough can speak the truth into your life in a loving way, in a gentle way. Sometimes they might have to kind of push it a little bit harder, but in, in a loving way because they, they, they care about you more than you care about yourself. Some of you are never going to change. All you're going to do is get a big cranial uh, mass with all this Bible knowledge and your life is not transformed. That's why in our church we emphasize a lot on discipleship. That's why in our church we continue to help practice the spiritual disciplines. Because all these things do not come automatically. You got to be trained. And that's why I want to link this video to what I just shared, to what I'm going to share as look at Romans chapter 3. So let's watch this together. But wait until you have your own child. I don't really have a problem with that kid because the kid is doing what a kid does. Spoiled, self-centered. They think about themselves. They don't have the maturity to look outside of themselves. But what I'm amazed about is how the father handled it. Calm, cool, would not budge. Rather have the kid cry, let them cry. But this child was going too crazy, so he brought her outside into the parking lot. What is the connection that I'm trying to make? There are a lot of things in life that just comes natural because we are sinful. And there are a lot of things, if you want to become more like Jesus Christ, that has to be trained. And if you do not have the desire or even the will to say, I want to become more like Jesus because that's part of something that God is calling me to do, then what I will say to you is this. 
Some of you are going to graduate from college. You're going to get a job. And you're still going to be immature and you're still going to be focused on yourself. How do I know this? I look at a lot of single adults in our church. Don't make me call some of your names out. Was that good? Uh Uh-huh. I should get the camera and start talking. There are some who did not learn how to take responsibility while they were in college. That's why as a single adult, they don't take responsibility now because no one cared enough to speak into their life. And even if they did, if they have no desire to change, they're not going to change. There are people right now in our church, and that's some of us here, who still play the victim. That somehow there's some injustice done unto you. No, a lot of the things, it's choices you have made. And in your immaturity, you have said and did things that does not reflect the gospel. Oh, yeah, it does reflect a lot of human self-centeredness. And you continue to do that. I'm telling you right now, you graduate from college, you'll continue to do that as a single adult. And you you know what's even worse? You're going to get married, and you will continue to do that in your marriage. And I'm telling you right now, that marriage is going to head for disaster. The reason why I'm sharing this, and like I said, before we hear the good news, we've got to get the whole bad news. Is that we're not as good as we think we are. You could put that in a bigger umbrella. We're not as holy, we're not as Christ-like as we think we are, or even as we present ourselves to be. We're not as kind and loving as we try to present ourselves to be. How do I know that? Well, just put some pressure of midterms or finals, and let's say who's nice. Let's find out when you have to have a project, do at work, under stress. Are you still kind? And so what you begin to realize is that there's a lot of stuff inside my heart that, you know what? Like, I might not be what I think I am. And until I'm aware of this and I realize all the stuff that is really about me, we're not going to take any steps towards change. Because even if God wants to work in your life, some of you already, your heart is already closed. I think for some of us, we have done a good job of what we call behavior modification. Your parents hit you. I don't know. They yelled at you. They did certain things. So you start modifying your behavior to what they want. And you're good at that because you do that in church. You modify your behavior. Whether because you're a people pleaser, because you want to please your leaders, or maybe because you want to present yourself a certain way, or you don't want to look like a certain way, so you do the thing. But you're not driven inwardly because you love God and you love people. You love yourself. So what begins to happen is that you have modified your behavior that looks like something or someone, but the thing is your heart is not changed. So you look good, but your heart is rotting. And it's only when things are stripped away from you. It's only when things are very difficult where you get to that point where you realize, this is who I am. That's why I think one of the most beautiful things about Christianity is this, that you're not perfect and you don't need to be because we already have a Savior. Can I get a good amen to that? 
the problem with so many of us is somehow we think that we have to live a certain way which doesn't negate living in holiness and trying to love Jesus, but you're trying to be the Savior in so many different ways. And that's why the beauty of Christianity is that you can actually be vulnerable and open up and say, you're pretty bad, I screwed up, I messed up, I'm weak in this, I'm not good at this, and so that you allow God and his power to work in your life. That's the gospel. But what has happened over the years for some of us is that we have fed into this humanism and this humanistic mindset where it's about self-sufficiency, it's about what you do. You hate to fail, so you rather procrastinate and then affect all these other people with projects you're supposed to do, but you're just watching Netflix day after day to get your mind away from things. On top of that, you add that to mental health issues, you're a hot mess. So once again, some of you have learned how to modify your behavior, but in your heart, you have not changed. I think one of the greatest hindrances for us experiencing the power of the gospel and of God's grace is our inability, listen to me carefully, it is our inability to see the goodness and the greatness of God and to see the wretchedness of our hearts. That is the thing that's hindering you from growing. Some of you are like, yeah, God is great, but you don't see how wicked and wretched you are. No wonder Jesus had to speak to this one church in Laodicea, that they were blind, they were, they were, they were naked. They weren't as good as they thought. That's why he invited them to come and buy salve, to put on your body so that you can be healed. Listen to what R.C. Sproul, a theologian, he, in his book, Essentials, Truths of the Christian Faith, he writes this, and I think this is very important. Despite this verdict on human shortcomings, the idea persists in our human, uh, humanistically um, dominated culture that sin is something prefer, uh, peripheral or tangential to our nature. Indeed, we are flawed by sin. Our moral record exhibit blemishes, which I thought that was great. Like, we have flaws. Everyone can see it besides you. But somehow we think that our evil deeds reside at the rim or edge, living on the edge, of our character and never penetrate to the core. Listen to what I'm, this is so good. What he's simply saying is that the evil that all of us possess in our sinful nature, we relegate it to something that is out there and not to the core of who we are. He goes on and says this, basically, it is assumed, you should never assume, because you're going to make an ASS out of you and me. <laughs> basically, it is assumed people are inherently good. Perhaps radically corruption is a better term to describe our fallen condition. I'm using the word radical not so much to mean extreme, but to lean more heavily on its original meaning. The word radical comes from the Latin word for root or core. So our problem with sin is that it is rooted in the core of our being. It permeates our hearts. 
So what R.C. Sproul is trying to say is this, until you understand this theological point, that in your core of who you are, the sinful nature, that side that is selfish and what we want, that, that, is, that is core to who we are. The quicker you recognize this, the quicker you admit to this, the quicker you can accept this, the more you can start embracing the gospel. In essence, until you and I see how bad we are, we will never be able to see how good God is. And that's why it starts with looking towards Jesus, who, who the Bible tells us is the author and the perfecter of our faith, the champion of our faith, the pioneer of our faith. To think about him and what he has done to bring the reality of the kingdom of God into our lives. So this is what we're going to talk about today. And I'm going to try to make it very clear. Uh, hopefully you can understand this. And it will build off on the argument that he has already established in chapter 1 and chapter 2. Because this very pivotal chapter is going to then lay us a foundation for chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, and on. So here's the one thing. God's goodness conquers our badness. God's goodness conquers our badness. Will you turn to somebody next to you and tell them what the one thing is? Go ahead and do that. There are two things that I want to highlight for us that we must understand about God in order for us to see God's goodness and how we can conquer our badness. The first thing that we must learn about God and we must know about God, and we'll see this in this passage, is that God is faithful to his word that God is faithful to his word. In this chapter, you will see the Apostle Paul bringing up some objections, or if you want to look at it, concerns that people might have in light of what was already mentioned in the first two chapters. Now, if you remember, the Apostle Paul, for the first two chapters, what did he talk about? He talked about the power of the gospel, first for the Jews and for the Gentiles. And he also talked about righteousness that comes by faith, not by works, not by things that we do, but it's by faith and faith alone. Now, for the non-Jews, the Gentiles, we notice that they were living in unrighteousness. Why? Because they were living for themselves, because they didn't understand or know who this God was. God Yahweh, God Almighty. Even the Jewish people who had the law, who even had circumcision to mark them as people who are supposed to be different, we notice that they were all under the judgment of God because of idolatry and sin in their life. So that's why when we get to chapter 3, and more particularly in the first eight verses, we notice that Paul brings up some clear concerns or objections that people might have. So think about it. Here you are, let's say you're a Gentile, and you, you, you don't know this Hebrew God. And you've been living for yourself. This is, what, this is the custom of what you're used to. And all of a sudden, the gospel message that is preached to them is you, you have sinned against God. The way you live your life shows you that you don't know God. But the thing is this, you have no excuse. Because through the creation of the world, through the stars, everything, you know that there's a God that you have to be accountable to. 
So they're like, holy crap, uh, we're in trouble. And then these Jewish people are like, nah, 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 we are the chosen. And they're like, yeah. and then Paul says, no, you're messed up too. You had the law, you had circumcision to mark you as the people of God, but you have failed in your idolatry. You have failed in living out the mission of being a light to the Gentiles. You are under judgment as well because you have trusted in yourself rather than the promises that has been given through Jesus Christ the Messiah. So think about this for a second. They're like, uh-oh. These guys are like, oh my goodness. So objections will, of course, come up. So here is Apostle Paul using a, a, an old kind of like a debate or philosophy type of way of asking himself a question and then answering. That's what he's doing in chapter 3 here. So what are the concerns? So here's Paul trying to answer some of them in order to silence the doubters. The first concern, and I'm going to put it in a form of a question. There's three. I'm going to put it in a form of a question. Because we're talking about how God is faithful to his word. Everything he has spoken, everything that he has said, it is going to come true. That is how we're going to see God's goodness and conquering our badness. So the first thing is this. What's the prophet? What's the advantage then of being a Jew? If we're going to be condemned, if we're going to be judged by God, then what, what, what the heck? Well, why am I a Jew? Why did God choose us? Now, let me just pause here and say it this way. I think some of you grew up in the church and thinking that somehow you're very privileged. And I've always wondered, why did you grow up in the church? Well, because my mama and my dada. And so, boom, I came out, and then they just took me to church. So your whole life, you've you just been church. And so in some ways, you're privileged. In some ways, you're entitled, and you start thinking this way. And guess what happens? You think you're good. You know what I found out? And you find this out every single year. It's amazing. I love it. That's why I love doing ministry. You get these young, recent high school graduates. And I understand this freshman year is a little bit different because you've been hiding behind a little uh, screen and trying to have classes. I, 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 know, I know it's a little bit different. But it's amazing because a lot of times they come to college or a new city, and guess what happens? They're trying to live their Christian life on their high school faith. Huh. So guess what happens? They're doing pretty good because they're coming out to church. They heard of this thing called OCR. And so they're like, oh, let's see what they're about. They start coming out to life group. And all of a sudden, the first wave of exams. And they're like, oh, Lord. Their high school faith is not going to carry them through this time. So you know what I've seen over many, many years of doing ministry with college students? These high school graduates who are youth group presidents, who are leading worship, who are serving and doing all these things, these people that everyone said, wow, they're such a strong Christian, they come to college and they completely go in the deep end. Because they have no foundation. 
some of their questions about the Bible, some of the questions about who God is. Why is Jesus the only way? Now they're asking some of these questions, which they were not asking when they were under this roof of this pastor, youth pastor, leader, mom, dad, telling you, oh, just believe. So they come to college and the whole world is rocked. Does it describe anybody? It's interesting because this is the group of people that Paul is trying to speak to. Those people who were Jewish just by being Jewish, you're born into this. But they've never fully obeyed the law. They fully never saw Jesus as the Messiah. Let's read the first two verses. Let's read it up here. This is what it says. Then what advantage has the Jew? These are the Jewish people asking. If we're all going to be condemned, if we're all going to be judged, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Powerful. Some of the Jewish people were thinking, if we're all going to be judged and die, then, then why did I go through circumcision? That was painful. They're thinking this. Like, gosh, if, if this Christian life is, like, why did I go through all that? Why did I? In verse 1, the words advantage and value, it is translated as profit or benefit. So what profit? How does it profit me? By being a Jew, if I'm going to be condemned and I'm going to be judged anyway by God, what benefit do I have of being a Jewish person? I just can't eat pork, uh, you know, chashu. I can't eat any of that stuff. So there were Jews thinking, what is this benefit or profit of having the law and getting circumcised? What makes us so different? And what does Paul say? He says, you're different because not only because you're a people group of the Israelites, you also got circumcised as a sign of covenant. But he says, because you have the oracles of God. Let me give you some of the different translations of that phrase. The Jews were entrusted with the whole revelation of God. The New International Version says that you have been entrusted with the very words of God. The Living Bible says this, God entrusted them with his laws so that they could know and do his will. Out of all the people in the world, not only were you circumcised as a visible sign that you are my people, I chose you, not the Chinese people or the Korean people or the Africans or wherever you're from. I chose you. Why, Lord? I don't know. Well, God knows, but... We have to ask ourselves, we don't know. And he says, but more importantly, you have the revelation of God. You are a group of people that know, can know me and know my heart to do my will. This is the part that I think is sad. If Israel, the Israelite people believed in God's revelation and obeyed by receiving Jesus as the Messiah, then they would have been saved. 
then they could have fulfilled their mission to be a light to the nations. Isn't this similar to us? I think it's so easy to blame God for different things in our lives. But when you search deeper, we realize that we have failed to see that we have the privilege of trusting in God's word. See, so many of you have a problem and a beef with God when you have never fully trusted in the word that he has spoken. And I want to challenge you, and this is a challenge to every single one of us. There is not a single word in the Bible that God has not been true to. The only ones that has not happened, which is him coming back the second time, those things that haven't happened yet, but already he's batting 1,000. He's, he's, he's 1,000 for 1,000. He hasn't failed yet. Every single word in the Bible has been fulfilled. So what does it profit me? Well, you have the word of God so that you know God's heart, so that you can know what his will is, so that you can obey him and follow him. The second concern that he was probably thinking, oh, some of these Jewish people were probably thinking this, like, what's the point? So not only what's the profit, but what's the point? Let's read verses three and four. This is what it says. What if some were unfaithful? Does that faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true through everyone, uh, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Some of these Jewish people were thinking, okay, let me, let me think about this. If some of us are unfaithful to you, God, does that mean that it nullifies your faithfulness to your word? Because you said that we are your chosen people. And what does Paul say? Go back. What does it say? By no means. Exclamation. By no means. Or, of course not. That people's unfaithfulness and unbelief will never cancel God's faithfulness because God is always true to his word. Man, I hope you can, all of you in this room can experience this. How many of you have been unfaithful to God, but then you've seen God being faithful to you? Can I get a good amen? amen? How many times when you know deep in your heart God should not have blessed you? He should not have opened that door. He should not have provided for you. He should not have protected you. Because when you look at your life, when I look at my life, we're so far away from being faithful to God. But you got a job. When you didn't even pray. You got that promotion when there could have been other people getting it, but you got it. Then what do we do? Oh, I gotta do soap. I gotta do it. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Then you do soap. Mm-hmm. See, I'm in many different groups. I know when soaps are coming in. They're either leading something, they're in charge of something because they, they don't want God to zap them or something good happens. So they want, oh, thank you, Lord. This is my sacrifice to you as if God needed something. You know what verse Paul was quoting? Let's go back to that. That you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. That's an Old Testament scripture. You know what he's quoting? 
he is quoting Psalm 51, verse 4. Do you know what Psalm 51 is about? This is King David after he sinned with Bathsheba. He actually ended up killing her husband by putting him on the front line. And then God convicted him through the prophet Nathan. He repented and he wrote Psalm 51. And he says what? Those words, what does he say? He says that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. What he's simply saying is this. Everything that God has said, everything that is true and consistent in his scriptures, he will be proven to be right and we will be liars. Some of you are thinking, I don't know where this, I, I, how, how will God provide? I don't know. Does God really love me? Does he even care for me? So this is the human nature. This is the wickedness of our hearts. How many times in the Bible does God say he cares for us? How many times do we see in Scripture that he says he loves us when we are unlovable? How many times has he been with us, never leaving us nor forsaking us? That's why he is faithful to his word because in that sense it judges you. That everything that God has said in his word has come true and it will come true. But here you are, you're trusting in yourself, not in his word, not in God, but yourself. That's why some of those questions begin to come up. Because you don't know his word. When we sin against God and not obey his word, then we're proving that he's right and we're wrong. The contemporary English version says this, the scripture said uh, about God, your words will be what? Come on, say this with me. Proven true and in a court you will win your case. God, you're going to win your case. We're, we're guilty. We're constantly going to lose this case because you have never failed. We have, but you haven't. Look, look at the Living Bible. It says this. It says, do you remember uh, what the book of Psalms says about this? That God's word will what? Always prove true and right, no matter who questions them. It doesn't matter how many times you question God's word. He will always be proven right. It might not be right away. It might take 10 years. It might take five years. But he will never fail in his word. God is faithful to his word. That's when you begin to see how good he is. And then you see how bad you are and how bad I am. The last one is this. So what's a prophet? Why should I be a Jew? Why did I go through all this stuff? He answers that question. Well, uh, what's the point of this all? Well, because he's faithful to his word and he's going to prove you as a liar and that he's true. The third thing is this. What's with the punishment? Come on, God. Come on, man. Read verse 5 through 8. This is what it says. But if our unrighteousness serves to show that the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie 
God's truth abounds to his glory. Why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that God may come? As some people slanderously charging, charge us with saying their condemnation is just. Now, when you read this, it's like, wait, 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 what's going on here? Don't raise your hand because you, 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 you might actually be the person, okay? How many of you have someone in your life that always comes up with these brilliant ideas that are so unbiblical? <laughs> uh, do, do you know what I'm talking about? It's like, wait a minute, what, what? <laughs> You're just going completely against the will of God. Come on, let's kill that person, and then they could die and resurrect quickly. <laughs> And you're like, that's, wait, wait, no, 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 wait, what, what are you talking about? You, you always have one of those friends, right? You always have someone in your group, in, in your tribe who's like that. And so what they were thinking is this. this. This is what some of the Jewish people were thinking. If God is honored by judging our sins, then why can't we sin more? Okay, so I, those brilliant fools. Okay, so, so, so think about this. If God is exalted and honored when he judges sin, then why don't we sin more so that God can be glorified? Some of you are like, yeah, that's what I was thinking, you know? <laughs> you, you, you always have a couple of those people in your life who come up with some crazy rationalization, justification, and you're sitting there you're like, oh my God, you are a wicked man. They could justify anything. In verse 5, as we read, the New Living Translation translates it in this way. I thought this was interesting. It says this in chapter 3, verse 5. But some might say our sinfulness serves a good purpose. Praise God. For it helps people to see how righteous God is. Isn't it unfair then for him to punish us for this? Why can't we sin? Because when people see us sinning, but then God is more righteous, then they will exalt him. What's wrong with this? That's why it says, I'm speaking from a human point of view. Then Paul, I, I love it. He, he kind of go, why, 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 why? And he jumps back. He goes, I'll tell you why. He's debating here. And then he says, quickly in verse 6, that if God doesn't punish people for their sins, then that means that God can never judge the sin of the world. Listen to this for a second. If we have the right to judge people, then why doesn't God have the right to judge us? Here we are, very self-righteous. We're judging people. We talked about that last week. We judge people all the time. So here you are judging people, and now here you are saying, I don't want God to judge me. If he doesn't judge you, he won't be able to judge the rest of the world, which he has the right to do because he is holy and so different from you and so different from me. So for you to say, keep on sitting more so he won't judge me, or if he does, then he will be more exalted and he'll be glorified, it just doesn't make sense. That's what Paul is trying to say. That's why in verse 7 and 8, we see the same argument. Some people were like thinking, okay, 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 let me, let me think about this. If God works everything out at the end, then why should he be so angry at us 
and condemn us. It's almost as if they're thinking to themselves, if someone lacks truthfulness, what it will do is if they lie, if they cheat or do whatever, then somehow God will be lifted up higher. And Paul's trying to say, forgive me for saying this, but you're not very smart. I had other words, but I'm not going to say it. You're not very smart. What he's simply saying is this. How can God condemn the person as a sinner if you're saying that he cannot judge us? As long as at the end it works out, that's all right. Now, let me put this in real term. There are many of us in this room, they call, uh, there's a phrase that they use a lot, the, uh, the end justifies the means. Like, as long as it turns out, as long as that person gets saved, if you beat them up and hide them and kidnap them, you know, it's okay. At least they're saved. I know that's a stupid example, but it's kind of like that kind of mindset. Oh, like, how I work even though I cheated on this or even the exam, as long as I got a decent score so that I can still do what I'm doing. So it doesn't matter the process, but it's always what matters at the end. And what Paul is saying is that is so messed up. See, what God did was he created us to worship him. But sadly, we've been worshiping idols our whole lives. And in this idolatrous heart, we think we're so good, but we're not. And God one day will judge every single one of us for our sins. And you only have a couple options. That's it. You'll either go to hell or you'll go to heaven. That's it. We don't believe in, in nihilism where you just, your, body just, just, your soul just evaporates out. You will either be in hell or in heaven. That's why I think it's so important that before you die, that you come to know Jesus Christ. Because it's not just a ticket, but really you're entering into this incredible plan of God, the story of God, of the gospel. I'm just wondering for some of us here, are you allowing God's word to prove itself to be true, to prove himself to be true? Are you allowing the word of God to be a mirror that you can look at and see ourselves clearly? I'm just wondering, what are some things in your life you're rationalizing right now? You're making excuses right now. Because God's going to be proven to be true, and you're going to be a liar. Because everything he said in his word has come true so far. Have you experienced the faithfulness of God when you were unfaithful? That should cause us to remember his goodness when we don't deserve it. So God's goodness conquers our badness. And the thing that we have to understand about God is that he is always faithful to his word. Let me close with this last point. God is not only faithful to his word, but he is faithful to his will. That God is faithful to his will. I'm going to read this long section, and uh, I might skip over some because, I mean, we're going to study this in a uh, life group, and I'm just looking at the time as well. But let, let's go ahead and look at this passage here. So after he makes all these arguments, 
Now he's going a little bit deeper because what he's saying is that God is not only faithful to his word, but everything that he planned and everything that his purpose, his will, he's faithful to. And listen to what it says. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged all that. Both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throats is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of uh, apps is under their lips. Their mouths are full of uh, curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Let's just pause here for a moment. Now, I'm going to try to go through this quickly. You will notice that Jewish people, some of them are still thinking, are we really better off? And what Paul is trying to say is that both the Jews and the Greeks are under sin. They are all under sin. Now, the phrase under sin, this is important for you to know, means to be in the control of sin or to be in the reign or the rule of sin. So listen to what the Amplified Version says. Well then, are we Jews better off than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks, or the Gentiles, are what? Come on, say this with me. Under the control of sin and subject to its power. What's happening here is that no person can... Obey the law and earn salvation. This is what we've been trying to talk about from chapter 1 and chapter 2. No matter how good you try to be, no matter how much you try to obey the law, it will not save you. You will not earn salvation. And here's Paul proceeding to use Scripture. Now, you, you didn't notice it fully, but all the things that you just read they're all Old Testament scripture because once again, he's faithful to his word. And now he's going to be faithful to his will of what it's going to accomplish. And this is the part that is interesting because in chapter 10 through 18, he validates his accusations. He validates what he's trying to speak to the Jewish people about with Old Testament scripture. He backed it up with scripture. Let's look at these two sections. Chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 10, 11, and 12, and verse 13 through 18. Verse 10 through 12, pretty much what he's trying to say is, we are depraved. Did you notice when you go back to those passages, it says you will notice the word all, none, no one. No one seeks after God. No one does good. Why is this important? Because it means that every single human being in this world and this is something that a lot of theologians talk about. We are infected and affected by sin. Come on, everyone say that with me. We are infected and affected by sin. We are born with sin. So we are infected with sin in our lives when we came out of our mother's womb. And then it, we are affected by sin because we see all the broken relationships. We see everything that's going on in this world. And something tells us this is not the way it's supposed to be. So that's why what Paul is trying to argue is that no one, no one is exempt. 
Every single one of us, we are condemned. Now, I don't know how you feel, but you know, it's pretty bad news. Just because you grew up in the church doesn't mean you're saved. Just because your dad or your mom is like an elder or deacon in the church doesn't mean that your, your name is secured. Because once again, it is a decision that opens up the reality of the kingdom into your life. And now are you going to give your allegiance to this king, King Jesus? This concept is a theological concept of what we call the depravity of man or humankind. Some of you heard it before. It simply understands in this way that every single one of us, we have been infected and affected by sin. And that's why without the Holy Spirit, without God, we will not be able to do anything, let alone anything good. This is one of the theological concepts that we don't need to argue too much about. You know why? Because it is so obvious. But if we resist it because we think we're pretty good, this is where we're going to start messing up. I love what Malcolm Mugridge said. He said this, The depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality, but at the same time the most intellectually resistant fact. Is that good? Like, you could just watch people like, yeah, depraved, sinful, sinful. But it is the one thing intellectually that we resist. I'm not that bad. She's bad, but I'm not that bad. He's bad, but I'm not that bad. That's why in verse 10 through 12, we see that no one understands. No one seeks after God. No one does good. Not even one. Too often we do things, even the good things, with ulterior motives. I see this so much in Asia. Oh, let me, let me buy this time. Why do you want to buy? Oh, that person knows the other person of that place you want to get a job at. Oh. Or that person did something and then you feel bad because they paid less. Oh, let me pay. But you're like, I don't want to pay, but I I'll let me pay. You do good things, but there's ulterior motives. And that is what Paul is trying to say. Even some of your greatest works and good things is tainted with sin. Huh. Then we're just like, well, then why try? Why, why do anything then? This is the part where you have to understand how bad we are. This is the depravity of humankind. In fact, those of us who are sitting here and you have yet to trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are a pre-Christian, let me say this to you. It has to be the Holy Spirit that will convict you for you to be able to understand this gospel message and for you to then surrender your allegiance to other things, even to yourself, and then surrender it over to God. I love what Wayne Grudem said in his book, Systematic Theology. He's talking about those, because we're so depraved, it has to be the Spirit of God. He says this, Yet because of their inability to do good and to escape from their fundamental rebellion against God and their fundamental, uh, fundamental preference for sin, unbelievers do not have freedom in the most important sense of freedom. That is the freedom to do right and to do what is pleasing to 
God. The application to our lives is quite evident. If God gives anyone a desire to repent and trust in Christ, he or she should not delay and should not harden his or her heart. This ability to repent and desire to trust in God is not naturally ours, but it's given by the prompting of the Holy Spirit, and it will not last forever. So if you are a pre-Christian and you feel this prompting, what, what he's saying is don't delay, because that's the work of the Holy Spirit. Because if you don't, then your heart can get hardened. Can I also speak to those of you who are Christian? There are times when the Holy Spirit convicts you to repent, to turn from that way, to do something else that you, should, you shouldn't be doing. Do this. You know what I'm talking about, that prompting of the Holy Spirit? In the same way, if you do not obey that, because it's God has to put that desire. Sometimes there's that desire where you want to read the Bible, and you're like, Bible or this, and you miss that window of opportunity, then guess what happens? Sometimes next time you open up the Bible, it's harder to read. Or sometimes when he says to serve, and you feel this prompting, but then you're like, oh, I'm going to be busy. You start thinking about your schedule, and you're like, oh, maybe later. Then after a, a semester or even after like a quarter, you, after a while, you're not even serving at all. That prompting of the Holy Spirit, it's God moving in your heart. And the responsibility you and I have is to say yes to him. To say yes to Jesus. Not only are we depraved, I'm going to close with this, we're destructive. Verse 13 through 18. What I just read for you were all these references to Scripture. Romans, 13, uh, Romans 3, 13a is from Psalm 59, or 5, is it up here? Yeah. Let's just, uh, just go ahead and show all of them. Romans 13, uh, 3, 13b is from Psalm 143. Romans 3, 14 is from Psalm 10, verse 7. Romans chapter 3, verse 15 through 17 is from Isaiah chapter 59, 7 and 8. Romans chapter 3, verse 18 is from Psalm 36, Verse 1. Why is this important? Because when you look at these verses, I want you to notice several things. We notice the using of the various body parts. Can we go back to the other main passage in verse 10 through 18? Let's go ahead and look, look through that passage that I just read. Just look at these things. Throat, tongue, their lips, mouth, feet. All these things that Paul was using in the Old Testament scripture, they're referenced to body parts. Now listen to me carefully. It's these body parts that were guilty of sin because they contribute to being judgmental and it's going to condemn you. All these verses that you will notice, it deals with three things. Talking, conducting, kind of like behaving, doing something, and also seeing. The use of the mouth or the tongue is to deceive others and let out words that are poisonous, such as dishonesty, blasphemous things. Some of you, you do your white lies. Oh, sorry, uh, I'm in traffic right now. Traffic's cool. Sometimes I'm like, where are you coming from? Let me check my Google Maps if there's any red. It's all green. That's why I love Japan, because if you go to work and say, oh, the, 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 I was delayed because of the train, they go, liar. Because in fact, in Japan, if there is a delay because of something that's going on, they will actually give you a note that you can give to your boss. 
That's how precise they are. So I'm like, I can't live there. I'm always late. <laughs> what he's saying is stop looking at what you do, but you got to look at the heart. Listen to me. The use of the mouth, the tongue, whatever, all these things, what he's saying is it's not so much what comes out, but what? Or excuse me, not what goes in, but what comes out. Matthew chapter 15, verse 17 through 20, it talks about that anything that you eat passes through the stomach and then goes into the sewer. You know what I'm saying? Flushing, right? But the words you speak come from the heart. That's what defiles you. For from the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual morality, theft, lying, and slander. All these these, these are what defiles you. Luke chapter 6, verse 45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil desire produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. I'm going to skip over some of this stuff here, and you will look at verse 18, and it says, fearing God. That's the key to doing God's will. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, it says, fear the Lord. It is what? Come on, say this foundation of true knowledge but fool despises wisdom and discipline you know this other passage i'm gonna well i'm gonna read it from the message translation it says start with god the first step in learning in bowing down to god which is worship only fools thumb their nose at such wisdom and learning ecclesiastes chapter 12 verse 13 the famous verse in the niv it says this now all has been heard this is the the writer of ecclesiastes because he had everything in life he goes, here's the conclusion of the matter. He says what? Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Now, if you look at the last two verses, 19 and 20, it says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. What he just said in these last two verses of this section is a summary of what he's been talking about for the first two chapters and a half. Because the Jews and the Gentiles are all condemned, which means no one can escape God's judgment. This means that no one can be declared righteous by just observing the law, doing good things, going to church, going to life group, serving. The whole world, you and I, are going to be accountable to God. We're going to be answering to God. And I think this quote really stuck it for me, kind of drove it home. Randy Elkhorn, in his book, The Grace and the Truth Paradox, he writes this. Grace never ignores the awful truth of our depravity. In fact, it emphasizes it. The worse we realize we are, the greater we realize God's grace. If I could say to my own words, the more you come to the realization that you're not that great, and deep in your heart where no one else sees but you know, you see your wretchedness and how wicked you are, even in the good things that you do because it's all about you. The sooner you know this, the quicker you understand this, the more you're going to start appreciating the grace of God. He should zap us all, but he loves us in spite of who we are. That's the good news. 
That's why we do communion. Because remember what Jesus has done. That's why we get up in the morning with a skip in our step because we realize that this might actually be the last day I will live. And I want to live it for Jesus because he has laid down his life for me. That everything that I do today is about the kingdom. If one more person can come to know Jesus Christ, if one more person can experience the grace and the love of God, then it's worth it. The good news is simply the sooner you understand the depravity and the wickedness of your heart and how bad it is, but yet you look to Jesus who has conquered sin and death when he died on the cross. And the sooner you could look to Jesus and realize the goodness just overflows from his life, that you want part of that, the sooner I think you can experience deeper transformation. That's why God's goodness conquers our badness. As we prepare our communion, let me give us some next steps just kind of to think through this. First thing is this. Gain a proper perspective of yourself. You know what I realize that some of you, your parents have not told you the truth. Some of you don't have people in your life right now who care enough to tell you. You're just, you're just full of yourself. When it comes to life group, when it comes to church, you do like a shoddy job. But when it's your studies and when it's your work, man, you go all out. It's for you. You're that self-centered. Let's stop hiding. Let's just confess it, admit it. Yeah, I put more energy, more time, more care, because this is going to affect my future. How about other people's future? How about that life group? Just gain that proper perspective. I messed up. I'm self-centered. I need Jesus. Second thing is growing awareness. One of the reasons why some of you are not growing is you're, you are unaware. You have mentors, disciples telling you to be more aware, but you just will not believe it. That's why, you know what I tell people to do? Huh. Of course, get their permission. I record them. Especially if they're in my leadership. You got to improve on your communication. Oh, do I? Yes, you do. So I said, I will record you. And then we'll evaluate it together. Some of you are like, wow, this is pretty intense. Oh, no. What if you were supposed to be the one giving a presentation for your company or a school project? Wouldn't you want to do a good job? If you're going to lead life group and you're going to give a closing exhortation, I want you to do a good job because it's about people. So I want to encourage you, grow in your awareness. Find different ways for people to help spot things out for you when you're being self-centered, when you're making everything about yourself. The third thing is this, guard your times with God. If you don't guard your times with God, then everything's going to be human effort again. But when you're gazing upon the beauty of who Christ is and you realize how much he has done for you, 
And as he laid down his life, as he's now inviting you to be a part of this kingdom, that you don't deserve to be a part of this kingdom. You don't deserve to be a citizen of this kingdom. As you're spending time with it, you realize it's a privilege. It's a privilege. So that project you're doing or that thing that you're going to meet up with somebody for or the service that you're going to do, you'll do it with joy. But when you lose joy, you complain, you get bitter, then you're making about you, the wretched you, the wretched me. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. And lastly, give praise to God. Do this often. Once a day, just something you're grateful for. Something you can praise God for. Just see your attitude change. See, see your perspective changing. See your emotional level change. Live with gratitude. Praise God for something. Can we just stand together? I know you've been sitting there for a while. Just let's, let's stand together. Pretty much I put two sermons in one. But we need to go over this because chapter, rest of chapter 3, chapter 4 and chapter 5, there's going to be some good stuff. But we've got to go through this difficult thing about how sinful and wretched we are. But we don't stop there because then you're going to be focused on yourself. Oh, yeah, I suck. I'm really bad. But this is where you've got to gaze upon Jesus. So can I ask us just right now, just if you could just bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment and try to picture as best as you can with your imagination. Just think about that cross. That should have been our cross to bear. But Jesus bore that cross. In our wickedness, in our sinfulness, Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us. He died on the cross. Because it's part of God's greater plan, greater story, as He's pursuing after you, pursuing after me. I want to give you a minute or so just to ponder upon that cross. And then just start lifting up just short prayers of thanksgiving, just thanking God that in spite of who you are, in spite of your weakness, in spite of your sin, even something you might have done last night or this past week, that God will always be true to His Word even though we are untrue or unfaithful. Just thank Him for that, that He hasn't given up on you, that He's patient with you, that He's sending people, He's sending circumstances, He's sending things just to let you know that He hasn't forgotten that He's committed to us, wanting us to grow. We've got to humble ourselves and just confess not only our sins and repent, but let's confess, God, You're good. I'm not. You're strong. I'm weak. You're holy, and I'm sinful. You're faithful, and God, I'm unfaithful. So just about a minute or so as we prepare the communion here, 
and then I'll give you further instructions and we'll take it in and we'll close out. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to the Harvest Mission Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit our website at hongkong.hmcc.net.